Well, I'm going to introduce uh, a topic that the Lord has brought to me lately. I've already mentioned it a little bit to different people. We had some conversation on Tuesday. Uh, a couple of you were there on Tuesday, but I'm, I'm glad to bring it with everybody else. Um, a good friend of mine named Jonathan Hansen, pastors of church in Seattle area, and he is a big guy on identity. And uh, he uses uh, just prophetic gifting and stuff like that to help people have an, you know, an identity encounter. And he has just so many testimonies on what that means to people. And uh, he walked me through it, and it was, it was fun. We made a bunch of notes. And so it's, it's, really, it's, it's really a cool deal. Well, he called Vicki and I uh, one day as we were heading out of the house about a month ago. And he said, hey, uh, I have found this book. It's called The Other Half of Church. So let me ask, has anybody read that book or heard about it? Okay. Um, so it's called The Other Half of Church, and it's written, and I, I'm embarrassed that I can't remember the guy's name, and I could get it off my Kindle, but it's hard to get back and then get back where I want to be in the Kindle. His name is Michael Hessen, Hansen, something along those lines. Um, and the co-author of the book is a guy named Jim Wilder. Huh? Hendricks, Michael Hendricks. Okay, good. Michael Hendricks, and the co-author is, is a guy named uh, Jim Wilder. Michael Hendricks is or was, when the, this all took place, a uh, discipleship pastor in a megachurch. That was his whole job, was creating discipleship program for everybody there. And uh, he, he briefly went into uh, the success uh, that he's had some, but the, also the frustration in that the discipleship program, which involved pretty much traditionally what all of us have encountered as, as discipleship in most of our growing up in church, reading the Bible, praying, uh, spiritual disciplines of different types, fasting, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's centered around the, those sorts of things, maybe even accountability type groups or something along those lines. But what he found was that some people did grow and thrive under that environment, but an equal number or so of other people didn't. And he had no idea why. And it was frustrating, and he tried different things, and he would uh, devote a lot of personal attention to those people uh, because they were still frustrated, they were still not growing, all this kind of stuff. And in, anyway, in the course of seeking God on this thing, he ended up being introduced to this guy named Jim Wilder. And Jim Wilder introduced himself as a neurotheologian. <laughs> he is a counselor uh, and, a, and a psychologist and a pastor. And basically what he wanted to do was, uh, or what he did, was he, uh, in his psychology studies, just really got going with the latest research about brain science and how our brain works. And, uh, and it opened a door for him to understand some things. And so I'm going to have to, this, this is poor planning on my part, but I'm going to run forward. Okay, so let's talk just for a second. Uh, usually you put the introductory slides in the front. It's better that way. You know, why, why not? Um, so here's a, a little picture I pulled up of left brain and right brain. All of you have heard, I mean, has anybody not heard of the concept of left brain, right brain? And most everybody that I know is somewhat familiar with the idea that um, left brain 
is the analytical part and right brain is the creative part. Well, what Wilder talked about and brought out and what um, Michael brings out in this book is the latest in neuroscience research and stuff that actually I can kind of confirm a little bit. When Ronnie and I worked uh, with the guys at Learning RX, this was kind of research we did and stuff that I, I marketed. So I know this is true. And, and it, uh, it, we used a little bit different terminology on executive function and various things like that. But what Wilder sat down and explained to this pastor was that the input that comes into your brain, the experiences that come in, they come in back here. They are processed through the right side of your brain. Now, there's interconnection among all of this stuff, but they're processed uh, through the right side of your brain. They go across here, and then they are uh, further processed after the fact by the left side of your brain. So that's where you come up with your your choices. That's where you come up with your analysis. That's where you come up with stuff like that. This side, the right part of your brain, processes six times a second. The left side of your brain processes four times a second. So there's a differential. And character is the reaction before you think. In other words... A lot of people, and, and part of the old discipleship paradigm that, that Michael was struggling with, that it wasn't working, was that if you just make a better choice, or if you'll just get better doctrinal information, better information out of the Scripture, better information on, on culture, righteousness, and make better choices. But the problem is, you don't have time to make a choice when you react. Choices are important, and all that stuff, reading the Bible, and you guys know that's a big deal to me, all that stuff's important. But what these guys pointed out is that when information comes through here, it first goes through sort of the, the hippie part, <laughs> the relational part, the emotional part. Yeah, there you go. Thanks, buddy. Uh, it comes in here, and it goes across like this. And that's why I chose this, this illustration, because... This is also kind of the fun side. It's, you know, most people talk about it being the creative side, but it comes through here, then it comes across, and then it, oop, then it gets uh, processed on the other, other way. There's another, another one that illustrates it a little bit too. Let's see if this is the next one. Yeah. So this sort of illustrates the creative concept, but I just think it's fun. It's colorful and splashy, and it's kind of out of control and all this kind of stuff. And then the other side is the calculating side. So these two illustrations sort of illustrate this idea pretty well, I think, that our brain has these two functions, but they process input into our lives in sequence. Meaning you process it, bang, 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 six times in the same amount of time that it then moves over and gets processed four times. So the point is, what goes on in the right side of your brain when you are confronted with a life circumstance happens first, and that's your character. Or that's what we call character, you know, how you react. So, uh, Al, I don't know if you're... You have a very highly developed right brain response most of the time. Now, does that make any sense to anybody? Okay, all right. So the right brain is, like when we were studying and learning RX, the right brain was responsible for 
what was called executive function. And it was the thing that, that organized the rest of your processes, like reading and comprehension or uh, analysis and all that sort of stuff. So I, I absolutely totally believe this. I mean, I, that was stuff that we had discovered 10, 12 years ago and makes a huge difference in cognitive skill training and things like that. So that's the situation there. Um, emotional stuff, visceral reactions, things like that. That is, is the part we want. Now, how do you develop that? And that's what uh, Michael discovered that, boy, this, this idea of read your Bible, pray every day, and uh, you'll grow, grow, grow. Yes, you will grow, but you won't grow in that reactionary thing unless, unless you're cultivating the proper sort of responses in your right brain. Well, how do you do that? It's a challenge, right? Because it's subconscious. It's pre-conscious. So how do, you, how do you do that? Well, so that's when, now we'll back up. So with that in mind, there are four things that Jim Wilder shared with him, and then they've developed this, and it's just going great, great guns. And the book's been out for a little while, uh, a few years, and it's having a lot of success. Uh, the pastor guys that I hang out with, Jonathan and that group, there, we're, we're going through this stuff and it's starting to happen. And Jonathan's able to identify elements in his church where there are groups like his worship team and other places where their character development's going like crazy. Uh, Michael used an illustration. He got saved his, uh, sophomore, the, just before his sophomore year in college. And he didn't know diddly. He'd only read five chapters out of, out of Matthew. But he knew he was a Christian, and he, he, he knew that Jesus knew him and, and loved him and delighted in him and smiled on him. And when he got back with his former roommate, his roommate confessed, hey, I'm a Christian. We're not going to party. I don't want to either. They got plugged into a group, didn't even know what a Christian group was. But they got plugged into a Christian group. And because of the community and because of the fellowship and because of the love and because of the delight they took in one another, you know, like the old uh, saying out of Cheers, uh, it's a place where everybody knows your name. When you come in... And, and, and you're known and you're secure. You have that community relationship. There's people to call. And then there's, there's a security that comes out of that that allows you to have feedback given to you and you're, you're not afraid of it. You can, you can be corrected and grow and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's what, that's what they kind of set up the thing. So the four categories, and this is going to be just an introduction. We'll stay in this for a while. I think the Lord's got, got, got us here. The four and one of the ways they illustrate it is these are the things that fertilize the soil of character development. And he used an illustration about how he planted tomatoes at his place. In the first two years, they did really good. And then they started getting less and less and less. And he, and he came to understand that they had depleted the soil. So he had to start putting stuff back in. As soon as they did, the production went right back up. It's just common knowledge in farming if you are a real farmer. But So anyway, the first and the most fundamental condition for to, to, to facilitate character change and character growth is joy. Joy. Now, I like the fact that before I knew that, I heard the Lord say, call this place Joyland. <laughs> so I'm happy with the name. I've always been happy with the name, but I used to describe it negatively. I said, it's, uh, it's a place that you can't go to on Sunday morning and be a sourpuss and have a fight, you know, but th there has to be a positive side, not just a negative side. So anyway, 
Uh, joy is the first of these characteristics. The second is, uh, in, a, in a general term, is community or extended close community. But what they use uh, to, to help understand it, teach it, is the Hebrew word chesed or hesed. And hesed is the nature of the everlasting, secure, loving community. And so we'll be doing some word studies on that stuff too. But when you're in a community where you know you belong, there is a security that allows this part of you to develop because you're not constantly having to wonder if you're going to be disqualified from your community or excluded from your community. And then that made me think back to something that, that meant a lot to us in the early days of Joyland that Bill Johnson promoted at Bethel and in the, among Bethel affiliates. And it's that we need, uh, in most churches, you have to believe first and then you have to behave. And if you do those two things right, we'll reward you with belonging. You remember that, Jason? And when, when, uh, when Bill said, no, why don't we understand that because of what Jesus did, you belong? Therefore, we'll give you some time and some help to believe, and then we'll trust that you can behave. So I thought that was really good. And, and Hased is just a very deep, committed, familial, uh, concept. And, and uh, so it's this idea of an enduring community, a safe community, a community where you don't have to perform to belong. Okay. The next one, and I don't know why I always have a brain fart on the next one. So there's joy, there's community, has said, there is, what is it? Yes, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I've talked so much about identity and it's so important but I'd never added this prefix to it. It's having a we identity, which again, the concept further reinforces community, right? So what emerges out of a we identity rather than an I identity is the phrase, my people. It goes back to the idea of community too. And so then what this does is it gives us a standard by which to understand, huh, I reacted one way, and it, was, it, it doesn't feel right. How do, how do our people react to that? What do, what do we do? See how the, the, the we component and the identity then goes back in. And I, there's something about, and we'll explore this in more depth, but there's something about having a we foundation for your identity as opposed to an independent I foundation for your identity that opens up the ability to explore those subconscious assumptions, subconscious thought. Now, the part of that, uh, of both of these things that, that uh, we've already touched on, which was exciting to me, if you remember when we talked about meta-narrative last year. And meta-narrative is that story that runs through your mind. It's subconscious, so you don't, you don't think about it very much. But it's been built in over the doctrinal teaching you have, life experiences you have, all this kind of stuff. But um, the meta narrative is the subconscious storyline 
that makes it so when you open your Bible to read something, and let's say you are a person who's fully committed that the Bible means this or says this, or it's God's Word and so on, but you read it and you just go, uh, and, and it just tweaks you. You can't believe it. You can't assign value to it. So you, and, and then you get all kinds of weird theologies that come out where you minimize values of the things that, that aren't a part of your, your meta narrative and so on. The we identity and the I identity does that. You know, I am a person. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You know, now that one doesn't hold up as well when you say we're all just sinners saved by grace. It's said all the time in fundamental churches. It's said all the time in Reformed theology churches. But I push back against it. I go, I don't, I'm not going to. No, I'm really, really not a sinner. I'm really somebody who's saved by grace, you know. It, but you see how I'm saying it. This we identity brings all this stuff to the surface. And, and you and I have to agree on an identity point. We, it's not just for you to go ahead and make your own or me to make my own. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal because that's something that this Jim Wilder guy says makes room for the transformation of your reaction, your, your, your subconscious reaction. And then the last one is feedback. And that's the reason, one of the reasons, uh, Joy, and then the feedback part that Jonathan said, Larry, I've I, I got to get you the, this book. I, I want you to read this. Because you're doing instinctively at Joyland what th- these guys are talking about. And he goes, we're struggling to put it in place. You already do it. You have a mic all the time. People are constantly able to go. And it's feedback that, so the way they talk about it, it it's obviously like what we do about feedback. Well, what about this and questions and so on? Permission to do that without being rejected. But also, it's the feedback of correction. And, and it goes back because now it has this root. One, you're filled with joy, therefore you're secure. You know you're accepted. You're a part of a community where you're standing in that community and your value in that community and your place in that community is not in question. It's not being judged, uh, checked up on every couple of weeks by your behavior. The third thing is you have a we-based identity. So for me to reject you, I'd have to reject me. And that's dumb. I don't want to do that. I don't want to reject you either. But you know what I'm saying. So this is a part of it. So now when somebody comes up and goes, Larry, I think you missed the boat here. That's not, that's not what we do. Or are you sure that that's reflecting you know, who you are? Or, then, okay, well, let's, let's listen to that. And you, it's amazing the kind of growth that can come from being able to accept honest, critical feedback or positive feedback, how it reinforces stuff. So anyway, those are the four things. Joy, uh, said type, deep, eternal, or lasting community. Um, we identity, we-based identity, group-based identity, family-based identity. And uh, the, the, that opens the door to feedback and growth and character change. Okay, so the first one I want to talk to you about is joy. Because it's so freaking exciting. It's just like... <laughs> And we already know it, but it's just unbelievable. So here is a starting point for that. I want you to think of the question, where does joy come from? What is our source? Who is our source? How? And you already instinctively know this, but let's just go through this. So in Numbers uh, 6.22-26, this is one of the first places that this concept is, is spoken about. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, 
Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. Now understand the significance of this moment. God spoke to Moses and said, this is how you bless the sons of Israel. This is what you say. Now, you guys know that I'm on this kind of campaign. Let's at least believe what it says before we plug doctrine back into it, dilute it down and twist it all around. So I'm not, okay, so this is no, this is not Old Testament, New Testament. That's not what I'm worried about. God said to Moses, speak to Aaron and his son, saying, thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. Now, if you want to say, well, that, that blessing is not for us because we're not sons of Israel, go ahead. But you'll miss a good point, and the next one's down. If not, just eliminate 22, and then read this and see if it doesn't stir your heart. The Lord bless you and keep you. Does that sound like something you could accept? Being a new, new covenant grafted in one? Yeah, me too. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Look at two things that are connected there. His face and grace. How many of you have heard the gospel preached by grace churches? And I'm not, I, don't, I honestly don't have anybody in mind. But where there was virtually nothing to do. Matter of fact, there was distrust when somebody said, I feel like I saw the face of God. But they... Promote everything by being grace. Well, it's connected right here. And this is, the, this is the first place it is connected. And it's connected by God talking to Moses straight up. And it's connected as the foundation for blessing for the nation of Israel that continued on. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up what? Your countenance? No. His and give you peace. So here's something that I am excited as heck about on this joy thing. One thing that's frustrating to me, because I, I, I haven't had the specific job this Michael guy had about uh, being a discipleship pastor and having to measure those results and stuff. But I've been a pastor for a long time. And people that don't have peace... It breaks my heart. I mean, my gosh. We are in union with the creator and sustainer of all things. Why do we not have peace? Jesus said, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. Why do we not have peace? Now, why don't we believe that he actually gave it? And we actually have it now. So anyway, let me read them again. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Now, I don't want to get lost in the, in the word studies, but we'll just do one super quick. Uh, sin ka. I don't know how to pronounce it. Every time I try to pronounce something, I think of Yana. and I'm glad, I guess she's not here, but wish she was watching to correct me. Anyway, uh, look at what it says here. It, it, it's, it's blithesome or glee. Uh, it has to do with a religious festival. It's translated exceeding, gladness, joy, joyful, mirth, pleasure, and rejoice. And Simcha uh, is both a technical term for the expression of joy, and the, uh, don't go and rest this stuff, but it's also uh, 
speaks of the, the feast and the festivals, the joy, the celebration, everything that rises up out of that. So it's relational right from the start, right? Right from the start. And that's what it means. The noun catches the concrete coloring of the verb, as in Isaiah 55, 12, for you shall go out with joy. And it links it to peace. You shall go out with joy. Um, you go forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing. So it's this exuberance, this thrilling, this thing. Now, I don't think we need to go into great word study depth. And I've got just one more uh, set of Greek words that I want to uh, show you. But I don't want, we'd have to go too deep because I think you know kind of what joy is. I think that our knowledge of joy is sometimes sort of distracted because we're so quick to say, well, joy is, uh, it's not happiness. No, okay. Happiness is of a lower kind of order. But happiness is part. It's okay to be happy. 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 There are some very reliable translations that the whole blessing idea in the Beatitudes is happy is the man who. Happy is the person who. Happy is the one who. Happy are the peacemakers. That kind of thing. All right. So just let joy be joy, okay? Let it be joy. Let it uh, uh, allow you to... Let it allow uh, an expression. Let it allow have emotion. Let let it, Feel it. Let yourself feel it. This is one of the things they talk about in the book, is that feelings are distrusted so much in fundamental Christianity, in a lot of Pentecostal Christianity, all kinds of Christianity. Feelings are so distrusted because of some, I think, horrific uh, misrepresentation of scriptures in Isaiah 17, stuff like that. Um, just let, let joy be your portion. Okay? The kingdom is not eat and drink, right? It's righteousness, uh, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Interesting things to link together. All right, so here's the, the uh, New Testament quick look I want to do. Carl, uh, it's from the word uh, that is 54, which is Chorus, and we'll look at it in just a second. But here it is. Gladness, joy, and all the drives. Cheerfulness, calm, delight. Delight is a word that comes up a lot when you study joy. Delight is a word that is at the root of how God reacts when he sees you. And it's a better word than just saying God loves you. Now, I'm not saying it's a bigger concept because God is love and does love you. But we have so packaged love that we are able to keep it at a distance. And I don't know anybody, when you say to them, you know, when your Father in Heaven looks at you, He takes delight. His eyes sparkle. That is disarming to the old idea of, I think love is kind of reduced in significance in our mind because we feel like it's part of God's job description. He has to love me. And then we go into the thing, I love you, but I, I don't like you. Well, nobody's going to say, I love you, but I don't look at you and get giddy and have delight in my eyes as a result, you know, because you just, you feel like a hypocrite when you say it like that. So anyway, I think, I think this idea of calm delight is really beautiful. Cheerfulness is beautiful. Uh, Cairo is a, the verb to be cheerful. 
to be well, and it's used as a verb as greeting and stuff like that. So it's intrinsically, this concept is intrinsically relational. Joy is intrinsically relational. Generally speaking, joy is not something that you think about when you're not engaged in something, a relational something. Uh, it's translated joy and all, all the greetings and so on and so forth. And again, it has to do that calmly happy thing. So there's a peace and security to it. Here's the killer. Both of these words come from uh, that Cairo word there, charis. Does that ring a bell with anybody? It's the word for gifts, spiritual gifts. It's the word for grace. It's the word that's translated grace. And didn't it say, the Lord let his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you? Charis is one of the most important words in the New Testament. There are whole denominations. There are obviously whole Bible schools in town built on it. The whole idea of charis has been something that's been an awakening truth since the early 1900s in the church. Because it was lost a lot in some of the legalism and some of the, the, the you know, punitive kind of things. But look at what it is. It's joy. Graciousness. Especially the divine influence upon the heart. How does the divine, that would be God, right? How does the, the divine influence your heart? He turns his face to you. Now, there's an interesting, let me see if I can find it real quick in here. Oh, yeah, we're going to be late. So, I'm going to get a paper book. It's easier to mark. Um, okay. Oh, no, I came right back up. God's face, it, this is a quote out of the book. God's face is connected with joy in the Bible. One of the first scriptures I memorized when I was a new Christian was Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy. That's the New American Standard. In your presence is fullness of joy. However, in the, in the original Hebrew, it renders the verse this way. The abundance of joy with your face, not your presence. Now, I love the idea of God's presence. But I, I was in Assemblies of God pastor for a while. And I can say from firsthand experience that in, in, in as much as I love the Assemblies of God and the Assemblies theology and the enthusiasm for the Holy Spirit, there were a lot of times when we were hungry for his presence, but devoid of joy. Because presence is something that is not the same thing as this. Yes. <laughs> you can it makes you feel something, doesn't it? And this is just this is just me, which of course is okay. <laughs> the reason you feel something when I do that with you, or you do it with me is because he is in us. And this is one of the ways that he turns his face to us. So here's this, this um, verse in the New Testament now. 2 Corinthians 3, 15 through 18. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, I want you to think 
ahead to the back, to the ahead scriptures about the, the two sides of the brain. The happy, fun, emotional, colorful side, the analytical, they're both important. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. I think the reason is because that, the, that reading is being processed almost exclusively in an analytical way. And of course, you saw that go to extremes in the Pharisee culture that evolved to the time of Jesus, right? Because they were not, for the most part, happy people. They were not fun people. They were exacting people. And the reason that they didn't recognize the very face of God was because he did enough things that violated the analytical side that they couldn't accept it. And they couldn't accept him. So I think that this is a way of understanding part of the significance of this. Uh, when Moses read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, now the face word, the face word is exactly that. It, it, if you go back into Hebrew and you talk about when it says God turns his face, and you don't translate it presence, but his face, it means it's the part of him that turns to you. It's this motion. Not turns away, turns to. Not stands in the room in majesty. I love that. But that's not how your father primarily knows you. He knows you by turning his face toward you. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty is a freedom word, right? It's a more loose, happy freedom word. And we, again, I, I just pulled numeric standard up because it's what I always use. I'm not trying to cherry pick to just make a point. But look at this. And why does it say but there? That's interesting. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all, fortunately that but goes back in contrast to when Moses is read, probably. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Beholding as in a mirror. What do you see in a mirror? You see you. You see you. And I don't know, those of you that have been at Joyland a long time, I mean a really long time, you remember when we pulled the mirrors out and we had to look at them and it was hard for everybody. There wasn't hardly a single person in the room that could stand there, these mirrors were about this big, and just stand there and stare at their face and be comfortable about it. But we all with unveiled faces, beholding us in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That's what Wilder found out. That's what he promoted to the, Michael. That's what I'm experiencing and thinking is true here. Transformation comes through seeing the face of Jesus turn to you. And then even more security comes when you see his face shining back as if you were looking in a mirror and see your own face. You see it in the other person, you see it in ourselves. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. 
there's a lot of neat exegesis that could go on there, but I just want you to think about if we just reduce this down and let it say what it says. It says basically that the glory that Jesus promised, Father, I'm going to give them the glory you gave me, John 17. It comes when we look into the face of Jesus and see ourselves reflected in his eyes. When we look into the face of the Father and we see delight for us shining back at us. And for those of us that have the ability to, to engage in some of those kind of things through ascension and through other stuff like that, it's just stunning because it really is amazing. You see a big grin on Jesus' face when he's looking at you, it's hard to walk away feeling condemned. Even if you've done something and screwed up. So, which we can do. And that's one of the points of, of joy. So, but we're being transformed into the same. So it doesn't surprise me that what we behold, remember what it's, uh, John says in 1 John chapter 3, it do, little children, it does not yet appear what we should be. But when we see him, we will be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. Now, I don't know if John and Paul conspired to write those two things and have them fit perfectly together. That must have been something with the Holy Spirit, but it's absolutely killer. Our transformation comes because we see Jesus as he is. Then Paul, jumping back to him, has that passage where he says, so as you come to know, or rather are known, that's the key to transformation. And that's the, the, and the, and the, the immediate response, the immediate infusion and reaction is literally Visceral, emotional joy. It's joy. When, when Father God looks at you and you see delight in his eyes, you get joy. But it's not just him. When we look at Jesus and see him reflected back as in a mirror, our own countenance, it's joy. And because he lives in us, when we look at one another, we see joy and we feel joy. And we can, we can train ourselves to do that. Yeah, Jen, go ahead. I just want to confirm. So in an ascension with Holly on Wednesday, uh, I saw, you know, you were talking about Jesus. He's not just standing there. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I saw him and he was majestic in this gold from here all the way draped down. And we were, as children, just around him. But there was this sense of awe, you know, like, wow, you know, just like. Because it's true. I mean, he is majestic. Oh, no doubt about he it. He's, awesome. he's, the, he's the king of kings but, and the Lord but of lords. But this yeah. is what Jesus said. He said, uh, I'm not untouchable and to come close to me. And so that invitation was just, you know, don't just look at me and in awe, but let me hold you and, and come Amen. close to me. And so Amen. that uh, came to my mind when you were just talking. And, and about did it create a reaction when you did it? Did it create? Oh, a, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. But yeah. I, you know, there is that sense where you can just feel. Like he's so holy and he's so mm -hmm. 
vast and amazing, like you can't get near him. And so he was breaking through that piece, like I can be both. Mm -hmm. I can still hold you and I want you close, even though I'm all that. Amen. Amen. That's beautiful. Yeah. Nancy. Um, can I turn this around? Yes, you may. I want to talk to everybody. <laughs> Please do. Um, most of you know that I've been ascending and descending for over 40 years. And about 35 years ago, I was doing a conference with 28,000 people. And the chief speakers were T.D. Jakes, Mark Sharona, Joseph Garlington, people that everybody knows. And I was a nobody. Anyway, I had... Yeah, <laughs> well, I have to tell you this because it really has to do with the way that we think about seeing God's face. I got up in the pulpit, and I hadn't been able to ascend that day, and I was just, it was my birthday. And I think I was 45 years old. Well, that's been over 30 years ago. But anyway, I was standing in the pulpit, and I burst into tears. There were 28,000 people there. And I said, Lord, I don't know what to say. If you don't show me your face, I don't know what to say. And I got real still, and he said, I want you to just pan the crowd. And so I started at the very top deck, and I just looked around at all of the people, and I looked down at the second deck, and I looked at all the people, and then I looked down at the floor, and I was just watching the people. And all of a sudden, he said, now you have seen my face. So the, the whole thing is, it's beautiful to ascend and to stand in his presence. Nobody knows that better than me. But the, if we're going to be truly transformed, and if we're really going to become love, not just give love, not just do love, but become love, we have to recognize the face of God in every single person. No matter where they are, no matter what their theology is, no matter what their doctrine is, because he is love. And that does produce joy, and it's joy unspeakable and full of glory. And I just want to say thank you for this message, because I'm 75, and the joy of the Lord has always been my greatest strength. And I know that that comes from seeing his face. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, not only not only can we, but we have permission to do so. We are aligning ourselves and our vision with the truth when we look for the face of Christ in here. And you can even, if you need a biblical permission, you can do the next verse. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, not to those who are determined to go to hell and never get out. The ones that are like a piece of fruit sitting on the counter too long, rotting. It's no way to live. It's no way to be. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So when Moses was read, there still could be a veil, just like the gospel there should be a veil. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, 
For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's why we can see him in one another. And we can see ourselves reflected back. And we'll get into this more in detail. I want you to understand the absolute nature of your right and responsibility to look for Jesus in the face of every single person you see. They might still be veiled to the truth of the gospel, but you don't have to be. And you might even get some goofy little evangelistic line like, I know something about you you don't know (laughs) because you've never looked for it. Anyway, I've always thought that that was true since I woke up to this, but I never realized that just the exchange of countenance and delight in your eyes can literally pull joy out of someone. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so uh, now we've got our brains. Now, can you see why this illustrates a little bit more of the, the, the spectrum of joy and the spectrum that follows that of security and community than this? There's nothing wrong with the analysis. I like to analyze things. As a matter of fact, I overanalyze things most of the time. But there's something special there. And then that is just a mess. It's a pretty mess. It's a fun mess. It's the kind of mess that I want us to learn how to live in. When something bad happens. Now, one of the interesting things, and we don't have time to go into it tonight. Well, let me read this thing out of, uh, this is a quote from another book by Jim Wilder. How well will we handle relationships, emotions, pains, and pleasures throughout our lifetime? That's the question. He says, joy creates an identity that is stable and consistent over time. Joy gives us the freedom to share our hearts with God and others. Expressing our joyful identity creates space for others to belong. Joy gives us freedom to live without masks because in spite of our weaknesses, we know we're loved. We are not afraid of our vulnerabilities or exposure. Joy gives us the freedom from fear to live from the heart that Jesus gave us. We discover increasing delight in becoming the people God knew we could be. I'm going to read that one more time with just one little change, and I don't have time to go through and do it in the scriptures like they did. But one of the things that Michael did in the book is he pointed out that translations rob the face of God from us a lot by calling it presence when it really means face. And so the shining of God's face is the source of joy. And the shining out, you know, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. So when you look at him, you see that. But he also said, you're the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. We are. It's time to believe that and to realize that the way that light goes out is not through us analyzing the most recent tragic circumstances and coming up with a cognitive answer to it. It's to let it come out of our face. So uh, I won't do it in Scripture, but I'll do it in Jim's quote. How well will we handle uh, relationships, emotions, pain, and pleasure throughout our lifetime? The shining of God's face on you creates an identity that is stable and consistent over time. Is that true, Richard? 
It's absolutely. Now we've, we've called it love and it is love because he's love. But it really is when we wake up and go, wow. And you see his face. You see the delight in his eyes for you. So um, the shining of God's face on you creates an identity that is stable and consistent over time. The shining light of God's face and delight in you gives us the freedom to share our hearts with God and with others. Expressing the identity that comes from his face shining on us creates space for others to belong. Mercy. That's part of the community, right? The smile, the release, the, oh my gosh, good to see you again. You know, it's, it's, and, and I'm not trying to make a big deal out of that. That's just the stock and trade of the kingdom of God. Because of when Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Holy cow. Uh, the shining of God's face on you gives on us gives us the freedom to live without masks because in spite of our weaknesses, we know we're loved. We're not afraid of our vulnerabilities or exposure. The shining of God's face gives us the freedom from fear to live from the heart that Jesus gave us. We discover increasing delight. How could we not? He delights in you. It's just a fact. It's a fact that the devil would like us to not see. He covers, he veils, he tries to keep all that. But that's just what Paul said. People that they can't see the glory of the gospel. Who's the glory of the gospel? Jesus is the glory of the gospel because there's a veil over their eyes. But, all right, anyway, you get the point, right? You can do that in scripture too. When it talks about presence, just change it to the shining light of his face and it'll just rip you a new one. That's probably not a good thing to say. All right. Here's the one that we, we first started with, right? The, the, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious. Can we just say, God, you knew exactly what you were talking about when you told Moses to tell Aaron and his sons to do that. Amen. All right. How about this one in Psalm 1611? This is, a, this is really interesting. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence, this is New American Standard, in your presence, Panin, is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures evermore. Pan, uh, panin has two interesting things in its definition. It's plural, but it's always used singular. It's kind of like Elohim is. It's really cool. It's really cool. Panin. It's a, a, an unused noun, pane, from pana, and it means to turn to face. It's the word that's translated presence there, panang, panin, literally means when you turn your face toward me, it's fullness of joy. The kingdom is not eating or drinking, but it's righteousness, peace, and God's face shining on you. That's all it is, but it carries a punch. <laughs> it's got some whackability power. It's got transforming power. As we behold him, we'll be transformed because we will behold him as he is. We're the ones that benefit with the transformation. Does that make sense? All right. So that's the uh, end. Yay.
and spec up and look at the goofy brain. Now, I'm gonna go ahead and take a five minutes because uh, thanks to you, Jen, on Tuesday night, uh, she said, well, this is a lot of great information. I didn't go quite this depth on it, but, uh, but, but let's do something. So what I'd like us to do is to break in groups of three. I don't know how many people are here, but break in groups of three. And I'd like you to just sit there for a moment with one another, get around one of the tables, sit there uh, uh, for just a little bit with one another. And we're only going to take about, we only afford to take about five minutes, but it'll be okay because God will do it. Just like when you said, you got to show me, he'll show you. Um, Today I woke up in kind of a funky situation, mentally, and I, I sat with the Lord, and uh, I, I said, I need, I need to see you. And he, uh, he took me to a place uh, that he showed me one time about when I'm journaling, it's the chamber of my heart, and the Father, Son, and the Spirit are there. And they just sat there with these just Cheshire Cat grins on their face, the Holy Spirit manifested as this very attractive female figure. Uh, the father looked like an older version, a little bit, not much, of Jesus. That's how it looked. And I was coming because I needed. And they just... <laughs> in, in about a minute, I was just filled. So I want us to do that. And then I want us to conclude, not by saying a whole lot. We'll get to that more. But uh, I want you to just look at, at the other two people for a few minutes, or a minute or so, a minute, minute or so. And just, if you have delight in them, if you have delight in them, if you can, if you can figure out a reason to have delight in them, then just let that delight come out of your face. And then those of you that are being looked at, Delighted on for that minute. Record in your in your thought what you feel, and don't be afraid of it. Okay.